everybody, and welcome back to the Weather or Not podcast, the podcast by weather enthusiasts for weather enthusiasts. It's your host, Drake, here with my co-host, Colin. Welcome back to another podcast, our sixth installment. Uh, we don't have a celebrity guest for this one, and it will be a little bit shorter because, you know, as we are college students, we got busy lives, we have busy plans and stuff like that, and plus, there hasn't been too much weather to really talk about as of late, which honestly is a good thing, you know? I mean... I walked outside today, and today's uh, the day we're recording this is Thursday, April 8th, but I walked outside, and there wasn't a single cloud in the sky. It was just nothing but blue skies. The air was kind of still. It was very, very nice. Yeah, it's, it's nice outside, but I also like when there's clouds because, you know, I sunburn really easily. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of warm outside. I mean, I guess it's nice weather for, like, going to the beach, but not swimming in the water. The water's still too cold. Yeah, it's definitely nice enough to walk around and, and be active outside. I've been playing a lot of tennis over the past, you know, over the past few days and stuff like that, and just being more active and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there there is a little bit of active weather that seems to be coming up in our future, namely Friday. Um, and Friday is very interesting setup with a lot of, uh, I guess, the first big hail chance of this year in the um, the South Ozark region, part of East Texas as well, Louisiana, um, all being under an enhanced risk as we speak right now. But um, there there is a pretty sizable chance for some pretty damaging hail. I've seen reports up to baseball-sized, uh, not reports, uh, forecasts of up to baseball-sized hail. And it just looks like a relatively dangerous situation down there. Um, I actually saw like a hatched risk for hail under a 30% hail risk, which is... It's pretty big for you know this time of year and, and and a pretty big indicator that this will be more of a hail setup than it will be a tornado or supercell setup yeah and it looked when we looked at some of the models i mean there's a model agreement that it's at least going to become linear at some point mm-hmm. but um right now we're just you know looking out to see if there's going to be any discrete cells in in or between because that's your like real shot of any tornado chance which i think there's a 10% tomorrow? No, it was a 5%, 5% tomorrow. 5%? It's, okay. it's over the exact same area currently that the 30% hatched hail risk is. Okay. And that 5% is mainly for QLCS tornadoes, which for everyone who's listening and doesn't understand what that is, basically those are tornadoes that form along a squall line. Um, so your typical like damaging supercells, and we look at these like uh, tornado outbreaks, like the ones that happened uh, last month in Alabama, those are discrete cells. And discrete basically means that they're on their own. So you'll get these supercells that are just on their own and they track for a while and they have the potential to put down a tornado as the entire cell rotates. Um, and as the rotation gets stronger and there's more and more moisture and more and more lift and more and more convection, that increases the chance for a tornado to come down and that's where you usually get your damaging ones. However, um, with QLCS tornadoes and squall line you know, tornadoes, you get one giant line of storms that stretches up to like 100 miles and it's just one continuous line, so it's it's very, it's a very small range of precipitation actually um, from east to west, with usually it passing over your area in the span of about ten to thirty minutes. Um, but it increases the risk for hail cores, it increases the risk for straight line winds, and those QLCOS tornadoes kind of spin up when you can get such strong winds and enough little rotation in a mini part of it that it creates a small little tornado. Usually, your damaging, devastating tornadoes don't occur from these, but in addition to straight line winds, those QLCS tornadoes can be just as dangerous, and it's even more dangerous to chase, which is why you know a lot of people who might be able to chase this storm won't, just because you know with, with QLCS 
events and squall line events, you get these lines of uh, storms that just you know go you know hundreds of miles, and it's really really difficult to be able to avoid it. So you might get caught in some of that gorilla hail that a lot of people in the weather community like to call it. Um, so it, it's overall it's going to be a very interesting scenario. Um, Drake, you have any thoughts on it? I really just. Um... I'm going to keep looking out because I know that there's not a lot of cap tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So there's a good chance these things can pop off. It's going to be a later event too, but like like Colin said, it's something that's quick, but it's also powerful. You know, the straight line winds can get up probably to about tropical storm level. Yeah. With this event. Like it's yeah, with the gusts. Yeah, yeah, with the gusts and straight line winds can do as much damage as a tornado can. So if you don't be out driving during straight line winds, not a good idea, especially with the hail risk tomorrow, which hashed area usually means like two inches or more in diameter. Yeah, that's likely. Yeah, so basically if you're like out tomorrow and you see a big shelf cloud coming towards you, (laughs) take cover. (laughs) Yeah, and our real like main tornado threat outside of that is just going to be if discrete cells form in front of that dry line. Um, and the dry line is where the uh, squall line is going to be. And it, it, it's probably going to be fully organized by about sunset. Um, it has the potential to start a little bit earlier than that. But currently, the current models are pretty much agreeing that around the um, Oklahoma-Arkansas border, stretching down into that portion of East Texas, um, around you know 7 p.m. is when that squall line is really going to start. And it's going to move through um, the... Ozarks is going to move through Louisiana and eventually make its way to the deep south. Um, and most of that hail is going to occur overnight, and especially in parts of Arkansas and Louisiana. But if some discrete cells form well above, well in front of that dry line, even as soon as maybe 2 or 3 p.m., especially in parts of Oklahoma and maybe over DFW, if those discrete cells are able to get strong enough, tap into enough moisture, and spin up in a, uh, in a proper rotation, then that's when you have a chance for a couple of, um, you know, tornado-worn cells here and there. I don't think there's enough... Uh, the wind field is primarily southwest, um, which, you know, you can see that in the way that the, the squall line sets up. It's going to be... It's going to look like it's going in a diagonal line from southwest to northeast. So because of that, usually you can tell that the wind field is going to be moving that way um, with the storms. But um, because of that, it's a little bit difficult for those tornadoes to really get formed, but there's going to be plenty of energy, plenty of cape values for those tornadoes to really tap into some instability. So, or for those cells to tap into some instability. So I would not rule out a few discrete cells, you know, in between 3 and 6 p.m. that might, you know, spin up and, and potentially produce a tornado anywhere from, you know, Cleveland County, Oklahoma, all the way, you know, to the where the squall line finally gets together um, outside of Arkansas. Yeah. So, basically, what we're just trying to say, we're giving you a little brief, but always stay weather aware, because especially a lot of people, you know, we recently we've seen, like, a lot of high risks and, like, a couple moderates. The We've had a kind of a string of enhanced. I believe this is the second day in a row. Uh, let's see. Well, not second day in a row. Uh, we had one yesterday, which at this time, this is a Thursday. On uh, Wednesday, uh, we had an enhanced risk to the east of us. And uh, on Friday, we'll have an enhanced risk also to like the east of us. So speaking of this, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of what's coming towards them. Like, you know, you think, oh, enhanced isn't anything. Well, this squall line could be really bad. We just don't really know because the weather's not really super predictable. 
Yeah, and um, another thing that like is is becoming more apparent is like the tornado risk is diminishing. I know that I think there is at one point there was a ten percent risk this morning, but uh, whenever the seventeen thirty Z SPC outlook came out, they downgraded it to a five percent. And I think a lot of the the reason is just you know there's more as we get closer to the event, the models are coming to a little bit more consistency, and they're kind of you know latching onto the idea that this is going to be more of a big hail straight line wind event than a tornado risk. Um, and so that's why you're not seeing, you know, like, this isn't necessarily the case of, like, it's not going to be a strong storm system, but it's going to be a low-coverage storm system. So, you know, there are there are a lot of parts, you know, of Texas that might not even see a drop of rain tomorrow. And there, are, You know, depending on how squall lines split up and stuff like that, you may only even get rain for about 10 minutes, you know. It'll be a very quick storm and stuff like that, but... What might pass over you will be pretty intense in terms of wind and hail threat. So that that's why, you know, especially even with, you know, the potential for a 30% hatch risk of hail, we're not seeing a moderate, we're not seeing a relatively large enhanced, you know, it's, it's all just mainly slight risk for most people. Yeah, and we definitely want to keep an eye on this because, you know, any kind of weather, like the situation we're about to have, especially with, like, straight line winds and your, like, linear setup is always kind of, you know, very like it's in a situation where you don't know how high the wind gusts are going to be you know it's going to be straight line winds but we don't want a situation like august 10th of last year you know like the iowa derecho um it's like that's something you can always look out for i don't see any models that have it being that severe but we know like the national weather service and like the spc has kind of you know issued these risks because they know that something's going to happen and they can always you know lower it or you know enhance the risk but i don't think anything about this storm you know will go any higher than it already is i mean i don't see anything that the spc has said about any chance that they would like and you know make the risk any higher but it's a good thing that we're getting some severe weather i guess in the plains especially because We've had a lot of fire weather, high mm -hmm. winds, you know, it's kind of dry. We don't really get as much weather. You know, the plains are always known for its severe weather, but it's been more of a, you know, Dixie Alley kind of, you know, season so far, which, I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of last year. It wasn't, like, many events in 2020 here for the plains, but there's still a good chance, you know, that there's more severe weather on the way well yeah and that's also just a case of climatologically i mean the the dixie alley and the deep south tends to have their peak storm season between you know march 15th and april 15th whereas our peak storm systems tend to be between april 15th and may 15th i mean you think about all the great oklahoma tornadoes you know you talk about the two may um you talk about the two more tornadoes both of those happened in may of 1999 and may of 2013 the el reno tornado happened may 31st 2013 um i think i said 2019 but i didn't meant to say 2013 i don't know um but regardless like most of these like damaging tornadoes and some of the great tornadoes in oklahoma history have happened in may so it does not surprise me that we've had a little bit of a slow start to severe season at least in oklahoma but if as you're seeing you know these spc alex come out they are ever so slightly shifting more and more west I mean, we had so many enhanced and, and moderates that were East Coast-based and South Plains-based, and now some of the most recent enhanced risks have been in Arkansas, and they've been moving slightly over. I mean, this is, you know, we have an enhanced in parts of Oklahoma right now, so it's 
we're definitely seeing the severe season shift more and more west. And I, I fully expect, especially here in a couple of weeks, we're probably going to get a relatively nice plane system set up here. Um, I mean, there's a chance for this evening or for this week that it was going to be up in Nebraska and stuff like that. And, and Kansas, you know, uh, back last week, whenever the models were showing everything, and it ended up being more Arkansas based. And, and some of the stuff that was going to happen in Kansas and Nebraska tend to not be as severe. But, you know, it was still a case of like, we, we are seeing the outlook shift more and more um, west. But um, one thing I know, I, I, you just mentioned this, and I didn't want to touch on it, is we are still seeing some pretty critical fire risks. Um, I know that the, um, especially parts of West Texas and parts of New Mexico, and even uh, some of the Oklahoma Panhandle area, is still in an, um, either like an enhanced or a critical fire risk, um, elevated, sorry, or critical fire risk, um, for you know tomorrow, Friday, April 9th, and, and through the weekend. So hopefully you know we can also have the severe season shift more west because you know severe weather ends up solving a lot of problems with drought you get a lot of not or not solving but um helping to alleviate a lot of the problems with drought and a lot of the plains regions are in a pretty severe drought right now so we are definitely hoping that rain um can can be restored to this area yeah um i'm really hoping you know that we're able to you know get out of this like beginning of a drought situation it's kind of like reminiscent of 2011 you know we had yeah. those droughts and i mean i know late may was um pretty you know strong for like tornado activity in 2011 for the plains right and but that was you know we already had that drought so we don't want something like that again i know everybody's bringing up the 2011 comparisons to this year but i'm hoping it's not as serious so but, am i um, speaking of 2011, um, you know, it's almost the 10-year anniversary of the um, April 27th outbreak. Yeah, we're, you know, we're going into April now. It's going to be about 20 days until there. You know, it was just recently the, um, it was, what, what anniversary was it? Was it the, like, I don't, we were just um, talking earlier this week um, along our friend group about, you know, the um, 1974 super outbreak, which saw a lot of storms in the um you know the tri-state area um ohio all the way down to the deep south with you know it was the uh, before 2011 it was the largest tornado outbreak the u.s had ever seen and um it's one of those things that's really fascinating to look back on especially just you see some of the parallels to 2011 but you also see some of the stark differences um i know the um sailor park cincinnati tornado that happened uh was the most photographed tornado at the time um, it had been the most photographed one um, for sure since the uh, Dallas tornado that happened in the 1950s. But, um, you know, that's one of those events that I really want to research more and look more into was, you know, that event because, you know, it was really the first big tornado outbreak since, you know, the National Weather Service was pretty much founded and, like, excuse me, and, like, really as far-reaching as it is. So it's, it's one of those things that I definitely want to research a little bit more. And I also was looking at, like, the statistics from the super outbreak. And I know this is before the enhanced Fujita's, you know, skating uh -huh. um, rating seal came out. Sorry. And I saw how many, like, F4s and F5s there were. I believe mm -hmm. it was the most F5s ever. And just thinking about, like, you know, the damage on that day, you know, and how it was, like, unmatched. Like, even the 2011 outbreak didn't have as many strong rated tornadoes as... Um, the 1974 outbreak so there's just a lot of you know comparisons that people make to these super outbreaks but in reality they were a lot different 
Yeah, but that's also still like yeah, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize is like how things have changed, and because you know, even though there were more you know damaging tornadoes back then it's also because homes weren't as well constructed and people weren't as aware so you know especially when you get really you know poorly constructed homes or you're not technologically advanced enough to to build structures that are capable of withstanding those winds uh, you get more damaging tornadoes because you know you took one of those tornadoes that might have been rated an f5 then it probably would only be an ef3 or an ef4 with the enhanced fajita scale or Fujita scale, just because, um, you know, the homes are way more well-constructed nowadays. Um, but another thing is, like, how actually devastating April 24th, 2011 was. Or, sorry, April 27th, 2004 was. Or, sorry, wow. 2011. I'll, get, I'll get this eventually. <laughs> April 27th, 2011 was. Um, because of all the tornadoes that have killed a substantial amount of people, I think more than one um, in in the 2000s, uh, 24% of those, you know, EF4, EF5 tornadoes happened on April 27, 2011. So that's about a quarter of all EF4 and EF5 tornadoes over the last two decades occurred on one specific day, on one specific outbreak. And, you know, even though the frequency has definitely gone down, I mean, we haven't seen EF5 since more 2013, that's honestly not a bad thing because what it's telling us is First of all, our homes are more well-constructed. I mean, you look at the uh, Noonan tornado that happened, you know, um, in Georgia at the end of the most recent outbreak in, in the Deep South, and had those homes not been as well-constructed as they were, or maybe the same quality of construction that was prevalent during the 1974 outbreak and stuff like that, then that would easily have been an EF5 tornado. It would have swept that stuff right off the ground. But because we have instituted a system that takes into account well-built homes and stuff like that. You know, it's it's we're having less EFIs because, you know, people are not as devastated, right? People, yeah, it's still a lot of devastation, but there's less devastation that occurs with better-built homes. And um, speaking of like the you know you know the ratings and stuff that we're giving out, I think they're developing a new rating system. It's still like going to be. Fujita scale, but I think they're adjusting how they find yeah, it. Yeah, I think there's been more I've proposed. saw some like proposals and some studies done on it, but also coming about that, there was also that study that came out that more tornadoes are actually rated F4, F5, EF4, EF5 than we actually think, but it's because they happen in open fields that the damage is not. Yeah, so well, what are your thoughts on that? I honestly, a lot of people don't like that, but I'm someone who actually really, really does like that because... You know, I, I think with there should be a certain threshold, you know, like for instance, the El Reno tornado, in my mind, not only did it kill, you know, veteran storm chasers and like impact so many storm chasers and um, had the potential to completely devastate an entire region, it was in an open field. So even though it was initially rated EF5, or sorry, it had been sorry. It had been initially rated EF three. It got upgraded to an EF five, but then got downgraded to an EF three. And just because it didn't find any damage, the fact that it was the strongest tornado they've ever recorded, probably, and the widest tornado they've ever recorded, in my mind, there's no way that shouldn't have been an EF five. But for the most of them, I totally agree with it because there is kind of like a a, a special class when it comes to EF five tornadoes. You know, those are the ones that are the most devastating and. You know, when we talk about EF5 tornadoes, 
you know, you think of ones, and they those are the ones that have devastated the most people and the ones that hurt people's lives the most and stuff like that. And I genuinely think we need to only reserve the EF5 classification for the storms that, you know, cause the most long-standing devastating damage, you know? Like, for instance, Joplin. Like, you think of that EF5 tornado, that community is still reeling from those effects, and, and it killed so many people there. You think about the most recent one, you know, Moore, Oklahoma is a relatively large city, especially for this region, and the fact that it went right over an interstate and right over many subdivisions and two elementary schools, like, that makes sense, but you get a lot of these other ones, like, you know, I think one that a lot of people were pretty up in arms about was the um, 2020 tornado that happened in uh, Soho, Mississippi, but unfortunately, it didn't really hit a big area. It didn't really hit a well-populated area. And while it was extremely dangerous and one of the widest tornadoes that we've ever recorded, you know, it wasn't the strongest and it didn't cause devastation to a large group of people. And so while, yes, I think by wind speed, we probably could have rated it that way. I actually much, I'm, I'm very much in agreement with the fact that we need to only save that EF5 for the most damaging tornadoes. And a lot of people also make comparisons to hurricane categories. And this is something I've always done too. Where, you know, hurricane categories are solely based off of wind speed, um, which I honestly think they should include pressure into that. But a lot of people have said, well, why don't we have an enhanced hurricane scale that also takes into account of damage? And I think the main reason is because tornadoes are very, very small in comparison. They flare up and then they go away. You can't tell where they're going to hit. But hurricanes are usually like several miles wide, tens of miles wide, hundreds of miles wide. And so whenever they make landfall, they're not just affecting a small community or it's just a little bit of, of space. They're affecting sometimes up to an entire state's coastline. And, and because of that, I totally support, you know, that one, you know, the, the Category 5 hurricanes that make landfall. It doesn't matter where they're going to be hitting. You know, if they hit somewhere, they're probably going to affect a large region with large damaging devastation and stuff like that. But you get a tornado that could be rated EF5. If it spins up in the middle of the Kansas field and hits maybe a farm, then I see no reason why it should be rated an EF5, even if it is extremely dangerous. Yeah. And I just... I Might be controversial, but you yeah, know. Might be controversial. <laughs> I mean, I understand the you know push for you know storms to kind of be rated off their wind speed. Because I know it's, it's difficult, though, because you can't really get an accurate wind speed measurement of a tornado unless you know you have a doppler on wheels there yeah but the thing is is i can see a lot of people's anger with it because they feel like a lot of tornadoes are being underrated and i know that you know you never want an ef5 but i can understand where people are coming from where they see you know the issue you know with the tornadoes being rated like an ef3 when you see you know a giant wedge tornado on the ground that you know hits like it doesn't hit a densely populated area, but it's like a strong tornado, you know, super high winds measured on radar. Exactly. It's kind of like the Brent Centerville tornado. You know, I think they finished the survey on that and it ended up being an EF3. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, the EF5 streak is broken. Or even for Noonan, Noonan was an EF4. And, I mean, you could have justified maybe even, you know, giving it a high-end EF4 rating, maybe even low-end EF5 just purely based on like you know radar signature but there's a reason we have people who survey these damages because they're experts at it and you know you can look at it and say 
Well, I think this tornado should be an EF5, but because there's anchor bolts that there's no anchor bolts on this house, I can't justify EF5 damage. So they give it an EF4. And that causes a lot of outrage because I feel like the, you know, so, you know, weather enthusiasts like us, you know, I guess it's like the shock of seeing an EF5, you know, rating that makes us, you know, like excited in a way. I don't think it makes us excited, but, you know, like we're so shocked by it. But the fact that, you know, we haven't had EF5 in eight years is a good thing. That means we haven't seen areas be devastated to that point. I mean, we, in the last month, we've seen areas such as Birmingham, which is a very large city, the suburbs of Birmingham, get hit by a tornado. The Noonan tornado was really close to Atlanta, was not far. And it, you know, it destroyed a, a community at EF4 winds in the middle of the night. So that's some things they have to look for. It's not really about the speed that it kills people it's you know just the tornado itself going through an area if it chooses to go through a mobile home park you can see a lot of deaths but going through a site you know with site-built homes you know it saves a lot of lives I yeah guess. well and, and i know you just mentioned the brent centerville tornado but i think that's a very interesting case because based off of radar presentation it was one of the the most classic looking hook echoes and debris ball signatures that I've ever seen and that most people had seen in a really long time. But there were never winds measured higher than 150 miles an hour. And even if you don't consider damage, that's not good enough to get you anywhere near EF4, EF5 levels. The Noonan tornado was much faster. And you think about the fastest tornado ever recorded, it was in the 300 mile, uh, 300 mile an hour range. So this is significantly less speed. Then you also get the fact that even though there were 13 injuries, there was not a single casualty that was involved with that tornado, which is a good thing, but especially given it hit a less constructed area or less well-constructed area with a lot of mobile homes near there, um, most of the damage that they surveyed that was even EF3 worthy was with the trees there. Um, so that's one of those things that you wonder, like, you know, I know they had dealt with a little bit of an ice storm down there over the past winter and they'd already dealt with some tornadoes there. I already would just wonder if those trees were even a little bit weaker than normal. And so that might be why it seemed like there's more devastation because it went through a relatively um, densely populated area in terms of trees. But um, most of the home damage was, you know, EF1 to EF2 at best. You know, so it's it's just one of the cases like, while in the moment there was a tornado emergency, it looked really devastating on radar. It actually ended up not being that devastating, um, you know, especially compared to EF4 and EF5 tornadoes. Yeah, and that's the thing, is we've seen a lot of deaths come from EF2 tornadoes this year. I believe the um, Ohachi tornado, it might have been upgraded to an EF3. I can check on that real quick. But um, I remember it was preliminary EF2, and it killed about five people, I believe. Yeah, it killed five people. That, it was an EF3 tornado. EF3. And you can just see that these tornadoes that people would consider weaker have been doing a lot of, like, the damage. I There was an EF3 earlier this year in North Carolina and Beaumont that I believe... I mean, I don't... Was it Beaumont? I can't remember the exact area. But it was uh, in south uh, southeastern North Carolina. And it killed uh, three or four people. And there was an EF3 in the middle of the night. It seems like these tornadoes that just, you know... Tornadoes pop up. You know, that's something that you never know about them. That's why it's so important to get these warnings out when we do, because it becomes an issue where, you know, people 
don't get the warning in time and, you know, they aren't able to make it because they can't find that shelter. So we definitely here at, you know, on this podcast want to push for getting a weather radio. It is so important that you have a weather radio or even bike helmets, you know, just something that can protect you, especially if you're in a home that doesn't have a basement and all you have is your interior room. Make sure to find that room. I mean, yesterday was um, we were on Twitter and we saw a lot of the safe place selfies. Yeah. And. I liked that because it pushed for people to, you know, go locate their, you know, their shelters so they'll be more well prepared for, you know, like tornado events. So I believe that, you know, everybody should, you know, if you're listening to this right now, go look for your safe place. Where would you go in the event that a tornado is coming right for your house? You don't, I mean, you can't really tell how strong it's going to be, but where are you going to go, you know? I think that's something that's really important to know. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, and, and it's also really important that you stay up to date with National Weather Service offices, especially your local one with your local weather people, you know, all that kind of stuff, because they're the ones who know how these storms are going to work the best. They know your area the best. They know they have degrees in meteorology, you know. And, like, while we have our own opinions on what we think a forecast might be or where we might want to chase or stuff like that, we don't have degrees. We aren't meteorologists. You know, we're just weather enthusiasts who want to become meteorologists. So we don't really know much of anything, you know. And and, and that's why, you know, we always – we're debating this EF scale and stuff like that. But in actuality, you know, it, it comes down to the point that the EF scale was very, very well developed. And, you know, meteorologists spent hundreds of hours researching the best way to do it. So And they also – research the damage to all this stuff and try to give it the most accurate assessment possible because you know some a lot of people don't know that damage indicators aren't just you know with the ef scale it's not like you know people just look at the damage and are like oh we think it's about this there are 28 different separate damage indicators um, that the national weather service can use to rate you know a tornado Um, and some of these are you know i'm just looking at these there's some that are really really specific motel is one of them a masonry apartment is one of them. A small professional building like a doctor's office or a bank. Um, an automobile service building or an automobile showroom. Each of those are two specific damage indicators. Um, a junior or senior high school has a different damage indicator than an elementary school. Um, there are warehouse buildings, freestanding towers. There's a difference between hardwood and softwood trees. There's a difference between different buildings. Like, I mean, manufactured homes with single wides and double wides. So there are so many different damage, and each of those also have different damage degrees. And so people also think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, damage indicators with EF scales, that, like, EF0 is basically nothing and EF5 is severe and everything in there is kind of, like, staggered. Just kind of like they think that, you know, a marginal risk is basically nothing and the high risk is basically everything with an enhanced being meh. Because a lot of times in our life we're taught that if you have a scale from 0 to 10 – zero is nothing 10 is the most severe with everything else kind of incrementally but when it comes to these kind of things it's almost you know logarithmic in a way where the difference between an ef3 and an ef5 isn't much both are extremely catastrophic but then the difference between an ef3 and an ef0 is pretty diff- different like for instance i'm going to read exactly what the ef3's um damage indicator is here so EF3 is considered severe damage with wind speeds between 136 to 165 miles an hour. Um, 
or yeah, yeah, you know, like in that kind of range, you know, you can have EF3s that are slightly weaker or slightly stronger, but normally if it's in that range, it's an EF3. And it's considered severe damage, with entire stories of well-constructed houses destroyed, severe damage to large buildings such as shopping malls, trains are overturned, trees are debarked and snapped, heavy cars are lifted off the ground and thrown, and structures with weak foundations are badly damaged. And if you hear that, that sounds like really devastating, and for a lot of times that is, but you compare that to an EF5, and an EF5 is well-built frame houses are destroyed with foundations slept, sorry, foundations swept clean of debris, and steel-reinforced concrete structures are critically damaged, with tall buildings and skyscrapers collapsing. Um, cars and trucks and trains can be thrown approximately one mile. So that's those things. You see damage with, like, you know, the Centerville tornado, but the reason it's not going to be EF5 is cars weren't thrown one mile, and things weren't completely swapped off their foundation. Were things collapsed? Yes. And was the damage pretty severe? Of course. But, you know, if you look at the foundation, it's intact, and then your walls are still intact, but, you know, you just have some collapsing. That's much different than something being completely swept clean. And that's something you saw with the Moore Tornado, is a lot of these relatively well-built houses were completely swept clean of their foundation. Yeah. And I feel like that's mostly what we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, it, it's a relatively short podcast, but, you know, it, we just want to give you guys some content, just some things to listen. Sometimes it's fun to just listen to people talk about weather, you know? Uh, hopefully our opinions are, are valuable to you guys and and also just remember they are opinions <laughs> nothing we say is factual um, or sometimes some things we say are fact but nothing <laughs> should be taken as fact yes and um, some things I just want to go before we uh, you know head out I really do want to thank everybody for 400 views on our last video we finally hit that threshold and that was so awesome to see. I'm so glad that so many people, you know, decided to, you know, come listen to the podcast with Reed. It was a really awesome thing for, you know, us to do because Reed has um, influenced us to, you know, become, you know, amateur, you know, chasers and, you know, learn the science behind, you know, storms. And it, hearing all the feedback that we got, it was really nice to, you know, see that people really did care. But, you know, I you know, was looking at the analytics, you know. And it seems that only 18% of our audience is actually subscribed. Yes. And I think that you will find, you know, these are a weekly podcast. I know a lot of people tuned in just to read, but if you keep coming back, there's going to be even more guests. And we're going to have an amazing time on this podcast. You might even see a chase video come out if we decide to, you know, chase tomorrow. I don't know what will happen, but there's a lot of storms, storm season and sentence prime right now. You're going to see a lot more from us. And... If you enjoy our content, give us a subscribe. Exactly. And especially if you're listening and this is your second podcast after listening to Reed's podcast, we very much appreciate that he uh, shouted us out on Facebook. But if you're listening and this is your second podcast, I encourage your friends and family to listen to. Encourage people you know to listen to because here's the thing. Whenever people don't know what to talk about, they talk about the weather. And we love talking about the weather. So if you're ever just in a situation where you're like, hey, you know, like, how's the weather or something? Maybe have us on your mind, the Weather or Not podcast, and maybe bring it up to your friends and see if they want to listen to. And, um, you know, we, we're going to get better at podcasting as well. I know I can already hear um, Drake's mom. You're probably listening. But he did say 10 you knows in his little statement he just made. I was counting. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully we'll get down to eight you knows in a statement, you know. Um, and, and so, obviously, we're having a lot of fun with this, and, and we're taking it extremely casually, because that's what this is, is a casual podcast about weather, and, you know, we're not 
we are meteorologists and and we want to be approachable and we want you guys to really just enjoy listening to weather and so that's why we thank every single viewer for listening and every single listener for listening as well all right and i just want to list some stuff off if you want to contact us you can either uh get uh get a hold of us on our instagram at suscore.wx our twitter at suscore.wx um we have an email suscore.wx at gmail.com you can email us some questions or stuff or maybe even a suggestion for a segment or even somebody that you'd want to come onto the podcast we're always all ears or even leave a comment below it really matters and it encourages us to keep going Anyways, I'm going to pass off call. Anything else you want to say? I got nothing. Just thank you guys for listening. All right. So let's pour out.